and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we come to you from the City of London, a place where the imposing structure of St. Paul sits very comfortably with skyscrapers and it's a part of the rich tapestry that is living in London. Now, I think this is a very fitting setting for the conversation we're about to have, which is on the role that the really the traditional energy companies, the oil and gas majors, play in the energy transition. Uh, we're speaking to Julio Del Paz who is a deep, deep, deep thinker on strategy. He started out with Accenture, a management consultants, I was there for eight years. Then he moved into Equinor and helped to form their strategy on the move from being a very traditional um, oil and gas exporter to being a fully integrated energy business. And it's a very, very interesting conversation. Um, Julio talks about what roles each of the different types of oil and gas companies play, what pressures that the oil and gas companies have on them for change. We also discuss uh, what is greenwashing. Uh, We also discuss what uh, net zero really means and ultimately what roles they will be playing in getting us from a traditional, quite dirty way of, uh, of producing energy into a green, sustainable future. A very interesting conversation, and I hope you get as much from it uh, as I did. Julio, welcome. Thank you very much for spending this time with us. I'm sure it'll be a great conversation. Well, thank you very much, Chris. It's great to be able to um, share some of my experience with uh, with within the oil and gas industry and also my journey through uh, throughout the energy transition and now um, advising clients on clean energy. So thank you for having me on your podcast. Fantastic, a real pleasure. Could you please kick us off with your journey to this point? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm uh, an engineer by background and I'm originally from Brazil. Um, and when I was uh, studying engineering, I, um, I always thought that I was going to uh, be designing satellites or and launching rockets into space, but I ended up working on a different uh, technology frontier in a way. So I ended up working on the oil and gas industry, which was looking into you know, drilling wells in ultra deep water environments and over 2,000 uh, meters uh, deep in harsh environments. And it, those wells are like uh, crazily long. You know, they have like seven kilometers of length. Um, and it's amazing the amount of technology development that you can find in this industry. Now, those are early days for uh, the industry to adopt digital tools, remote monitoring. And then I early thought that um, the energy industry was so important to every aspect of our lives. And I, I, I clearly enjoyed a lot going into that industry. And anyway, very early on, I started working with what we call the upstream part of the industry. So that's the kind of exploration and production part of the industry. I worked as a consultant um, advising on digital and business transformation in in places like Brazil, uh, the UK, uh, in the Middle East, before moving into the industry itself. So I had an opportunity to join the strategy and business development team at Equinor, and it used to be called Statoil back then, the, the Norwegian National Oil Company. And there I worked at first with m and opportunities and acquisitions and divestments of uh, oil and gas fields. Uh, but then after 2015, when they had the, like the Paris Agreement, that was a bit of a watershed moment for the industry. I was able to observe firsthand as well the efforts that the industry was taking in, to adapt it, it itself. Uh, into this new world of clean energy. And it gradually, I started working more and more on the strategy that the company was adopting to, towards a net zero uh, ambition. So before I left Equinor, I was working as a strategy advisor, mainly um, advising the company on its nascent renewables business, its nascent clean energy business. And then after a while, I decided to move back to consulting and advise other people and it help other people on their own energy transition um, and, um, and it helping them with their own investment ambitions on clean energy, on renewable power. So that has been my journey. It has been quite interesting to be working for an energy major at the time when all those things were happening. Um, 
And it was also good to be working for a company that had a lot of foresight, like um, the Norwegian energy company, like uh, Equinor at the time. Um, if you look at what Equinor in Norway has been doing over the past 20 years or so, they were some very early adopters of some measures that are helping the industry to decarbonize and to move away from high-intensity fossil fuels, for example. Um, just to mention a couple of them, if I may, Norway has banned flaring in their oil and gas fields for several decades now. And this is something that is a very low-hanging fruit uh, to help the world to decarbonize. Like, why do we burn gas from oil fields? It doesn't make any sense. Something else that uh, has been adopted very early on by Norway has been carbon tax in the country. And Equinor had to internalize that carbon tax um, and use it even in projects that were outside Norway. So that helped the company on its efforts to reduce its carbon intensity, and it helped a lot uh, to force the thinking into being a low or lower carbon producer in a way. Fantastic, yeah. Now that's that's very interesting. I didn't uh, know that uh, Equinor, one of the leaders in uh, carbon credits and um, in in carbon taxation. Um, but kind of, first, I think we should uh, kind of briefly explain what uh, what flaring is. Yes, flaring is the regular burn, uh, burning of um, gas from mainly from oil fields as part of the production process. So flaring are those um, any big flames that you see on some oil rigs. Sometimes you have to burn gas as part of your production process for safety reasons. If there is an, any, um, a, a big increase in pressure on your production, then you might have to release gas and, and burn it to keep things under control and prevent accidents. But what usually is referred by flaring is the uh, regular burning of associated gas just to maintain some oil production in the fields. So basically you're just wasting energy and you're generating pollution, you're wasting energy, uh, you're wasting resources just because oil is more valuable than gas. And then you see that companies do that on a regular basis in several parts of the world. Just to put it into um, really, really simple terms, oil and gas in a big hole in the ground, put, put um, a pipe down um, to like, like a straw that goes in, the gas comes out, but you just want the oil. So instead of, so you just really, instead of just releasing the gas in the atmosphere, light it, flare it off and uh, go in and suck Yeah, both come together because it's um, a, a reservoir of hydrocarbons under pressure. Usually you have oil with associated gas. You can think of it as a kind of fizzy drink in a way where you have uh, the gas molecules um, together with the, the oil. Um, and when you drill your well on the ground and then uh, because it's, um, it's such under intense pressure, everything comes together. But then if you only want to produce oil, uh, what do you do with your gas? And if you don't have any gas infrastructure, um, either you reinject the gas and maintain pressure on the reservoir or in some places and you do what you shouldn't, which is you burn the gas and then produce oil. That, that is such a um, low-hanging fruit. It's a shame that most countries haven't banned flaring yet. There are some plans to ban flaring by 2030, but in my view, that's already then it's too late. I agree, yeah, that is the lowest of lowest hanging fruit. Yeah, yeah, just bet that it has value. Hold on to it and sell it. But uh, could you possibly kind of maybe draw some parallels between your own journey um, from being kind of a, a, a dyed-in-the-wool oil and gas guy, uh, like you know, in the, into into the, the the deep technical nature of drilling and extraction, to the renewable energy um, role that role as you're in now, and draw a parallel between that and the journey that, say, that Equinor has been on. Um, so it was a very interesting time because we were pushing the boundaries of where we could find more oil wells, and there was a lot of investment on exploration. Companies were optimizing their portfolio of assets as well, so you know, those are more, the more profitable oil fields, and those are the uh, least profitable ones. There was a lot of um, reshuffle on their uh, portfolio facets. But there was very little thinking about climate change, um, almost no thinking at all, at least from most companies on, uh, on about renewables or investments on clean energy and so on. Maybe some companies were uh, pushing ahead with that, like maybe BP back then and on, with their Beyond Petroleum. Yeah, we can argue whether that was um, I mean, a heartfelt effort or not, but Either way, they were starting to think ahead, and at least this 
topic was appearing on the radar. But for most companies, that wasn't part of their core strategy. That was almost a, a sideshow within their, their core business. Really, the Paris Agreement is certainly a watershed moment because up until then, the industry had spent the past 10, 15 years, more or less, discussing about climate, discussing about the environment, but much more from a perspective of uh, preventing incidents, uh, preventing the biggest cases of pollution and of environmental damage that uh, it caused um, in certain places. After 2015, then not only governments, but also the investors, they also started putting a lot of pressure on companies to say, like, look, if uh, the world is moving towards net zero, what are you doing about that? Um, and not only what you're doing about that, please tell me how exposed uh, you are to the risks of climate change. So there was, I would say that there were like two forces at play. One was um, governments, investors, and the stakeholders in general putting pressure on companies to do something or maybe do the right thing, if you may. But on the other hand, there was uh, the, the fear of companies as well to be left with stranded assets, assets that they could in theory be producing for several decades, but that could be worth um, nothing if the world moved away from hydrocarbons. That was around the time when everybody started to be really concerned about their Kodak moment in the industry, if you may, which is like, oh, we have this fast-growing renewable industry. It's growing at an exponential pace. Uh, what does that mean for our core business? Are we going to be left behind? Are we going to be the next Kodak and, and so on? So how do we avoid that fate? What do we have to do to change our strategy? How exposed are we and how do we adapt? So that, that was the journey. And then from that moment on, more and more of my work uh, had less to do with oil and gas. And, and by uh, the time I left uh, Equinor, maybe it didn't have to, anything <laughs> to do with oil and gas anymore. And it had everything to do with how do we grow our renewables business? How do we um, create a new hydrogen and carbon capture and storage business? Uh, how do we become an integrated energy company? But even more important, two things that appeared on, during that period of time as well that became core parts of our strategy discussion were the pressure to think about ESG, so environmental, social and, and governance topics, uh, but also the topic of net zero. And it, what does it mean to be a net zero, to, to have a net zero ambition as a, an oil and gas company? Uh, if you ask people that question and if you said that those companies were going to have an ambition to move towards net zero by 2030 or so. Uh, if you ask them that, that like 10 years before, they would say just like, yeah, no, you, you can't be serious. And that doesn't make any sense. Uh, what do you even mean by net zero? Now, most companies have that ambition and everybody's talking about that. So that was my, also my personal journey on the work that I was doing, ranging from finding oil and gas investments all the way to discussing, okay, how we're we going to get towards net zero and what does that mean and what kind of investments and strategic moves we have to make to get there. There's two, two very fundamental points though. One is, um, I think you've very, you've very nicely framed um, the, the European perspective, the European kind of oil and gas ma major perspective. But what might be interesting to dig into a little bit are the, the different parts of the well, what, what would be considered the oil and gas industry, like the European, the American, and then the, the more kind of you know, petro-state type, type industries and different approaches there. And the other, which we can come back, come back to later, is what is net zero? Because it's a huge question. I don't, most people out there, when you say, oh, we go, go to net zero, they think, oh, that means zero. Net zero doesn't mean zero, guys. But maybe we, we could also, also dis discuss that. But please first, um, you know, the, the industry in general, okay, could you break it down a little yeah, bit? Yeah, and, and I think you, you, you described it, maybe the, the three groups of uh, maybe oil and gas players. And, and by the way, uh, when, when you mentioned the incumbents, uh, the incumbent oil energy companies, in my mind, the incumbent ones are the oil and gas players in a way. But, but if you want to transition... I would say that there are roughly three models that those companies were adopting. The European ones, they, um, they were very quick to start uh, redirecting some of their cash flow from oil and gas in, and investing into uh, renewable power generation, investing into carbon capture and storage, and trying to develop a hydrogen market here in Europe as well. Um, and 
the renewable power generation, some of those companies, in, uh, like Equinor, for example, they were taking their legacy as offshore gas production and using that expertise on offshore to invest on offshore wind, for example. And the UK was also very uh, one of the early movers into uh, incentivizing the offshore wind uh, industry, and companies were able to move very fast on, on that space. So, renewable power generation is one of the first business models that those companies were adopting. Uh, there are challenges if he, because the power sector, the power industry is a very different one than the oil and gas, has a different, very different uh, profile in terms of returns, and has a very different profile in terms of like risk-adjusted expectations as well. Uh, the reason why there are lower returns on those uh, power projects is exactly because they are m much more stable uh, than uh, the oil projects, which are much more volatile in a way. Um, but then the second, um, the second archetype, the second business model that some of those companies were adopting is the one to invest on hydrogen, on carbon capture and storage, for example. And that is the route that the American companies were taking mostly, uh, which is saying, okay, maybe we don't want to play into the power sector, so we don't want to invest too much on renewables. Let's focus our efforts on our industrial expertise. And we already have big petrochemical business. We know how hydrogen works. We have been doing carbon capture and storage forever, and in the same way that you can reinject gas into your uh, reservoirs, into your oil fields, you can reinject right. carbon as well, uh, carbon dioxide. And, um, and then the American companies, they, when they decided to move along the, uh, on their journey to decarbonize themselves, they said, we'll focus on hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. So you have those two early models. And then you have the third model, which is, it might be like the all of the above. So I want to be an integrated energy company. I want to do renewable power generation um, and produce hydrogen, play into the carbon capture and storage and do everything. Um, just to mention some downsides of each model as well. And if you, if you have an oil and gas and if you have renewables, you have to bring along your investors along the way because as long as your renewables uh, business is not big enough, then that's all right. Uh, investors won't mind you shifting away your revenues from one side of the business that has a high return into another part of the business that has a lower return. But if the renewable business gets big enough, suddenly you start having some really tough questions about, okay, what are you doing here? And you have to keep increasing your dividends to keep your investors along, and then you go into get questions like, okay, this is a value industry where investors are along with you on the journey to get their money back through dividends. This is a growth industry where you're betting on and you're growing uh, market share. Which one is that? And they, they, they have like very different investor profiles and they would like to diversify themselves rather than you do it for them. On the hydrogen and CCS business, that might be a way for you to keep your business going on for longer in a way. Um, I think that there is a strong case for companies to be on that space and help to decarbonize industrial clusters, for example. Um, but what's the role of governments in um, Europe and in the US? Has the transition been driven by regulation or has it been driven by, by, by other forces? Certainly regulation has played a, a big part. But if you, if you think about where regulation also originates from, it, it, it's originally from the public uh, opinion and, and the public pressure for governments to do something and to move in the right direction and to put pressure on private-owned companies to actually do the right thing and, and, and to move into the right direction. So regulation is important both to force companies to move at the right pace, but also to enable companies to invest in the right space as well. Um, and I'll give an example. So uh, the best example of where regulation uh, is providing a strong lead uh, to not only allow companies to invest into uh, the energy transition, to invest in clean energy, but also to allow them to move in the right pace is on offshore wind, for example. So here in uh, Northern Europe and in the UK especially, you have the government setting the pace with very strong ambitions to achieve net zero by a certain date, opening up leases and acreage and providing a support scheme for the offshore wind uh, industry to develop at a, at a faster pace than in other countries. And in the US, for example, you, could, you saw how long it took until the country actually adopted uh, offshore wind as a, an, as a strong way to, uh, to address climate change, to decarbonize their energy mix. Now they're trying to catch up. Um, 
But given that the industry is already investing billions of dollars here in Northern Europe, uh, even the catching up process will take uh, a while in the US. Regulation also needs to catch up with what the industry needs to, uh, to invest um, and to move faster in clean energy. So, for example, even like the European Union, you might argue, is at the forefront of achieving a net zero ambition and decarbonizing uh, society and, and so on. Um, even the European Union, they are trying to address the long lead time that it takes to consent a renewable project. And an offshore wind, even here in the UK, where you have strong incentives to, uh, to develop them, the consenting process can take eight to 10 years. And for a wind farm, that takes one or two years to actually build. Um, so un until you address this imbalance, companies might even be willing to invest more. I would argue that uh, they probably should be investing more and probably should be uh, moving at a faster pace. Uh, but you need to address uh, the bottlenecks along the process. And another bottleneck that needs to be addressed, and then again, we go back to the role of regulation in that sense, um, is on the construction of infrastructure, for example. Uh, one of the key points of uh, building a decarbonized energy system is that you need a lot of infrastructure. And if you are going to have renewable power generation, you need to, you need to build it where there is a lot of wind or where there's a lot of sun, but that those places are not necessarily the places where you actually have a, a big source of demand as well. They're probably far from the big cities and then you need to transmit electricity from one place to the other. And because of the, uh, because of renewables, um, uh, intermittence as well, so the sun is not always shining, the wind is not always blowing, um, you have to balance out your renewable power generation with power generation from other sources or from other places as well. So there is a lot of need for uh, integrating your electricity grid, integrating your sources of energy across multiple places, across multiple sources. But the problem is that to do that, you need to build infrastructure. Uh, and building infrastructure is uh, as hard as building anything uh, onshore or on land in a way. If you are going to build a big transmission line, um, well, then good luck, that might take you know, forever. So, and if you don't have uh, enough um, grid connections, how are you going to be able to develop your um, renewable power generation sources? So those are and, and enabling uh, a, f um, a faster consenting process uh, is something that government can do to accelerate the energy transition, accelerate the, the process of achieving net zero, resolving some of the bottlenecks to build and construct infrastructure is another point where regulation could play a strong role. Forcing companies to move fast and invest more is something that uh, certainly regulation plays a role, but those two things go together. And you can't force companies to uh, move faster if you don't resolve some of the other bottlenecks uh, that can't be resolved from a pure company perspective. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's the, the, the carrot and stick approach that governments tend to take where they, they set um, strict targets that uh, companies need to be doing to be on there buying their uh, green electricity or green gas. If you can't build it because there's no planning or there's no grid or you know whatever other you know structural problems there, well, there isn't very much the company can do about it. Or, or you can build it, but then you end up not connecting it. So, which is something that happened in in, in Brazil, for example. There were a couple of um, onshore wind farms building, uh, built on the northeast part of the country that were left waiting for grid connection for a couple of years until it actually arrived. That's an issue all over the place as well, like you see in Germany, and you have plenty of potential for, among other things, offshore wind in the North Sea, uh, in the north coast of Germany, um, but also good luck trying to build a transmission line all the way to the southern part of the country. And, and infrastructure is such a big topic, and it makes such a big difference as well on how society addresses the challenge of, uh, of climate change. And I think it's not uh, discussed enough as well. Um, I, was, I was thinking about the other day about our relationship with, uh, with energy and how it's changing as well. Um, in the same way that our relationship with, let's say, food or clothes uh, is changing, and we are much more concerned about how things are manufactured, how things are produced, and we're much more concerned about how our electricity is provided as well. So for the past 100, 150 years, uh, we got more and more use of things being, of, of being very far removed 
from the source of energy, the source of electricity, the source of food, the source of um, clothing and all manufactured products as well. You just turned up on a supermarket or on a store, everything was there and then um, you just had to pick and choose it. And the same thing with electricity, same thing with energy as well. You turn up the pump and then you fuel your car and then you, have, you don't have to think too much about where these, um, these or gasoline is coming from or how it's produced or what's the cost of producing and transporting it and, and having it available on demand at the fuel pump. But now, because prices are going up so much, people are starting to think again and quite hard about how much energy they consume and also where it's coming from as well. And then if you have rooftop solar in your home and if you have like a battery at home or if you have like a smart meter on, um, on your home, you have a much closer relationship to the energy that you're consuming and you think about where it's coming from and mm, maybe I don't want it to come from a coal powered fire plant, I want uh, to buy electricity that's produced from a, um, an offshore wind farm or from a renewable source. So you, you bring that much more into people's um, daily lives and that, that starts prompting the public to start demanding, again, the government uh, addresses the need to decarbonize the energy mix and, and, um, and that in turn starts putting more pressure on companies to move faster as well. So it's a, I think it's, a, it's, it's part of a, an ongoing cycle and that has been a lot more embedded into the daily lives of most people as well than in the past. Mm -hmm. Now it's an interesting philosophical point you bring up that uh, for the last kind of 100, 150 years we as um, certainly people in this, this part of the world, um, kind of in uh, Europe, um, have not had to worry about either energy or food. It just hasn't been, hasn't been something you would like, you turn up the supermarket, food will be there. You go to the pumps, energy will be there. Turn on the lights, energy will be there. For the entirety of human history up until that point, this was a daily, a daily concern for people yeah, in, in this part of the world and everywhere else. Now we're turning around again and we're going into, into a, potentially going into a cycle of much higher energy costs, of food scarcity, of food shortages uh, like caused by all sorts of like supply chain issues, mm -hmm. Ukraine conflict. Yeah, we're, we're, the world may well be, be, be turning away from that. We may be getting back into a point where we wonder if we, we, we reach the light switch, will it turn on or not? How does the industry deal with that? Like there's a big balance between security and price and the green energy transition. Like how, how do you balance all of those, those issues off? Yeah, um, I would say that's, an, that's a system that's um, um, inherently unstable in a way. Um, if you think about this triangle of what the industry likes to refer as the energy trilemma, if you may, and between security, sustainability, and affordability. Um, and it's too easy to think that there's a nice uh, spot there in the middle where I say, okay, I can solve for the optimum and balance here. My take is that there is no optimum space in the middle. This is an inherently unstable uh, system where you have to keep resolving those dilemmas and those trade-offs as you go along. And there will be tough choices along the way. So if you think about the choice between, for example, security of supply and sustainability, you want to keep the lights on throughout the day, but you also want to have enough energy here in the northern part of the world during the winter because it's cold and you use more energy, or maybe in the southern part of the world during the summer where you need a lot of air conditioning. Uh, but you want that energy to also be clean. So you want to have as much of that from uh, from clean energy from renewable power sources as you as you can, but the problem is that when when you have uh, some of those disruptions uh, on your energy supply, um, and guess what is your and the closest uh, power source? And it's probably like coal. <laughs> That's where you have like most countries they have um, a safe supply of coal at home. And then and if everything goes wrong and if they want to keep their lights on, oh, let's just um, and go back to the coal-fired power stations. Um, and the same thing as well with any, between affordability and, and security as well. And if you have price spikes because you have a scarcity of um, uh, one or another source of energy, you run the risk of uh, the public backlash against some of the energy transition measures that you're taking, against the, the whole idea of net zero, because then we can't afford that. Or even worse, uh, you have governments trying to shield their public from the worst effects of the, the price spikes, and then they start to provide uh, some, uh, some subsidies to, uh, to 
to fossil fuels, for example, saying, okay, now when the price of the price of diesel at the pump is too expensive, so let's cut some taxes and enable uh, the price to go down. Yeah, great. But then basically what you're doing is that you're incentivizing demand from the very thing that you actually want people to move away from, right? My theory, and, and, I, um, and I think that this is uh, an inherent part of the journey, is that more and more countries will look at renewables as a way to solve some of those issues. If you have a bigger share of renewable production, Basically, you're also insulating yourself from some of the global commodity markets. And if you move faster to electrify your economy, that will also help you to move away from uh, the global oil market, the global gas market. Obviously, I mean, there are challenges if you have a lot of renewables on your system, because what do you do with intermittents? How do you take into account challenges of keeping the frequency right on the system or, or challenge with like the, the kind of reactive power. The electricity system is built based on those big rotating equipments and those big turbines, either on hydropower plants or gas fire power plants. When you don't have big rotating equipment, you have other challenges that you have to take into account to keep the, the frequency at the right place. But all those things can be solved. And that's, maybe that is the exciting part of the industry these days. There's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of um, startups working on uh, incredibly new ideas to resolve technical and technological challenges of resolving uh, energy generation, resolving how to deal with intermittent self-renewable power, how to deal with the challenge of um, storing renewable energy as well. Could you tell us a little bit about how you see the um, innovation ecosystem working within this, this environment? You've obviously got a series of smaller players working very hard to, to try, try and uh, innovate, and you've got um, in-house teams within your, your oil and gas companies, within your, your energy companies, trying to do things as well. Like how, how does that all, all work together in a, in a European and US context? Well, since, since my background is from the oil industry, it's interesting because, like, for example, the two countries that I've worked with with, both in Norway and Brazil, they have very strong incentives uh, for companies to invest on, on research and development and on the startup ecosystem. So like in Brazil, for example, they, um, I think they, they uh, dedicate 1% of their company's revenue into research and development, uh, into funding startups as well. And in Norway, they, we have like strong incentives for the industry uh, to fund research and development programs. And um, since both countries, they have um, uh, most of the industry is also focused on offshore oil and gas. Most of the innovation and the startups and the research and the development that has been funded into this industry has been directed into solve some of the challenges of the offshore wind industry. But it's interesting how some of that is being redirected over time into the clean energy and into the maybe some very exciting space of, for example, the floating offshore wind industry. But answering your question. The innovation that is going to be needed and the, the solutions that are going to be needed for the energy transition and on the clean energy space are not going to originate internally from the, uh, from the big majors, from the big energy companies. You need a very active ecosystem of smaller startups, smaller companies, testing new things and seeing what actually works to be able to find the best solutions. And a comp big companies, they, they try to direct their research efforts too much, and they try to bet too much on uh, the things that they think are going to work out, and that approach might or might not work well on, the, you know, on some big oil, oil projects. But that certainly is not the approach that's needed when you need to move fast and when you need to find really transformative solutions within uh, the clean energy space. Drawing back on your kind of investment thesis that you were making a little, little earlier on, where um, you've got higher expected rates of return from the from oil and gas than you would do on renewables, because renewables is more, um, you know, boring infrastructure, low low risk, low return stuff, and uh, the kind of fundamentals of drilling for oil and gas there is there is there is risk in there. There's you, know, you either you, you you hit it large or it's uneconomic. But when you then put the extra layer of what you've just been describing of, well, you've got this industry that needs innovation, that needs driving, that needs to be taking risks, and if things fall down, that's okay, but we need to be taking risks. 
but that's not the oil and gas industry. That's the renewable and that's that's the low rate of return industry you're talking about. It's like how do we how do, how do we kind of square that circle? Well, uh, you square that circle because some of the uh, investments that are needed on the on the renewable industry, they're, they're actually on proven technologies. And if you look at wind turbines and, and the solar panels, obviously wind turbines are getting bigger and um, getting more powerful, but that's pretty much proven technology. There is a frontier part of that industry, which is like, I mean, floating offshore wind, for example. Uh, but even then, you're innovating on the floating structures, but the turbines are pretty much the same turbines as you had on the kind of bottom fix and uh, offshore wind turbines. Onshore wind turbines then, they're like, they are the same things that had been used for a very long time. So it's, it's very low risk in a way. And, and, and solar panels, the same thing. And they're kind of, it's a proven technology. You have a lot of research to make them more efficient, to make them um, capture more of the energy um, generated by the sun. But you know, the construction risk is almost negligible in a way. Contrast that with uh, the amount of risk that you run drilling for an oil well, for example, and probably less than um, a quarter of oil wells, and uh, maybe even less than that, actually find anything. So basically you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to do something where your ex expectation is that most of that investment is going to be wasted. And then even if you find something, you don't know whether you're going to be able to develop it or not. And even when you develop it, you don't control the price of your production. So you depend on the global market. And on the good days, and you have like high oil price, high gas prices, and you make um, um, outsized returns. But on the, on the bad days, and you might not even cover your costs. So this volatility also uh, provides a lot of uncertainty. Add to that the climate change horizon, and you don't know if you're going to be able to have a market that's long enough for you to recoup your costs. So that is why you end up having a higher risk return equation on the oil and gas industry. But on the renewable industry, I think that the biggest innovations that are needed are on things like energy storage, for example. So that's where, on the production side, this is like proven technology. You can have a low cost capital in, um, or capital that demands uh, lower uh, returns rates investing on that because then you know, it's like stable, it's, it's boring, it's predictable, but that's all right. It provides um, um, a stable revenue stream for a very long time, for decades to come. The question is, what do you do when it's producing more than what you need? What do you do when it's producing less than what you need? How do you square that circle? Uh, and that's where energy storage comes in, that's where hydrogen comes in, that's where some of those services that you can sell to the grid come in. That's where innovation comes in, in a way, which is to add revenue streams to those projects, add new solutions to infrastructure that is you know, somewhat boring, in a way. Uh, but there is a lot of space for, for investment. I think the biggest challenge, and you were asking about regulation early on, um, Regulation only goes so far uh, because investment usually flows to the path of least resistance. Anyway, if you have a lot of roadblocks along the way for investing in renewables or uh, into energy source solutions or investing on the grid or infrastructure. So over the past 10 years or so, we were very good at reducing investment on the oil and gas business. I think investment right now on exploration and production, at least for the major oil companies, it's probably half of what it was back uh, 10 years ago, but we haven't been very successful at ramping up the investment that's needed on the renewable side as much as it's needed to address the challenge of moving towards a, a clean energy. And until we address that imbalance, we will struggle with um, the price spikes on, on the fossil fuel side and not enough renewable generation um, capacity on, on, on the clean energy side. Okay. Um, so I think just to summarise that, there's 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 the the low risk uh, part of their their renewable energy, the the, the clean clean climate uh, space, which are the the energy generators putting together um, historic, well understood um, technologies, and then there's the uh, climate tech side. Where, where you do the, where you might have the potential to get the unicorn in there, be it's in in, in battery storage or, or or whatever else. 
But, but could we kind of come back to the point we, we touched on earlier on of, of what does net zero actually mean? And then I will add to your kind of climate tech unicorns, and I haven't even mentioned like fusion. The subject of a future, a future podcast. That, 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 that is certainly a, a discussion about any potential any, a, a unicorn or a disruptive technology that could change anything. But to answer your question about net zero and what actually net zero means, that question was actually a, a very interesting question, especially when I was working at an oil company, a company that produces fossil fuels. And so and we want to get to net zero, so exactly <laughs> what we have in mind. The easiest way to get towards absolute net zero is just stop producing fossil fuels and then you get there. But if you consider that fossil fuels are still going to be needed, and you mentioned that previously, fossil fuels are not only used on the electricity or the power generating sector, you need fossil fuels on the transportation sector, on the heat sector, and, and on, a, on a sector that's even harder to decarbonize, which is on the petrochemical sector, and even on the agriculture sector. For example, you produce uh, fertilizers, and, and that is um, a very big input to the agriculture sector. But then if you consider that you still need fossil fuels, something that you can consider is how can I produce them uh, with the least amount of emissions per unit produced, or ideally with zero <laughs> like emissions uh, as part of the production on a net basis. Then that's where you get to the net zero discussion. How can I offset the emissions of my own production, which you know, of the products that I produce, which are fossil fuels that when burned emit uh, carbon emissions? There are two ways that companies are approaching the question of how they decarbonize. First, they have to decarbonize their own operations. So you, it takes a lot of energy uh, for companies to actually produce fossil fuels. Oh, you need gas turbines, you need um, drilling equipment, you need um, you know, all those pumps that transport fossil fuels uh, across the pipelines. So it's a very energy-intensive process, even to get the oil and gas out of the ground. So th the first step is to decarbonize your own operations. And then to do that, Oil companies are doing what everybody else is doing. Um, they are investing into many equipment that's more energy efficient. They are investing into improving their processes to actually use less energy. They are investing into powering up their production facilities with renewable power. And again, Norway has been at the forefront of that, constructing floating offshore wind farms to provide renewable power to offshore oil and gas facilities. And then that in a way, it kind of lowers the carbon intensity of your uh, unit of oil and gas produced. So that's the first step. That addresses what is uh, you know, on, on the, 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 kind of, uh, the climate framework as a kind of scope one and two emissions, in a way. That's your emissions from your own operations. But the biggest challenge that those companies face is <clears throat> how do you address emissions three, uh, the scope three emissions? The emissions that are coming from the use of your products, which are Fossil fuels, or when they burn, that they are the main source of um, any carbon emissions. And that is in an order of magnitude <laughs> difference than your scope one and two emissions. Just, just to give you an idea of uh, the, the kind of the, the size of the challenge as well. So the current emissions here in the UK, the current annual emissions of uh, carbon dioxide, is probably around 400 million uh, tons of CO2 equivalent per year. And, and that is already half of the uh, total emissions from 30 years ago or so. So the UK has been one of the most successful countries in decarbonizing its, um, its economy over time. So if you take the UK that has around 400 million tons per year, Equinor, which is most likely the most efficient oil company in terms of having the lowest emissions per unit in the industry, um, Equinor alone probably accounts for like, I don't know, 75% of the UK's emissions as well. Um, if you take Shell, Shell probably accounts for like no, three times the amount of emissions that the, a whole country like the UK has. So those companies, they have like big challenges to addressing their scope three emissions. And what they are doing to try to tackle that side of the problem, most of them, especially the European ones, they are investing on renewable power generation that will help to decarbonize their own energy mix in a way. They are investing in carbon capture and storage. So that also takes down the, the net 
intensity of the production that will always leave um, a residual amount of emissions that they are not going to be able to offset in any other way. So for that um, um, residual amount of emissions, they are investing on either the acquisition of carbon credits or investing on nature-based solutions as well that, again, generate carbon credits. Uh, nature-based solutions like reforestation or afforestation, for example. So, you know, planting trees, um, and, and the logic is that, well, those trees, they will absorb CO2 while they are growing, and then they will generate some carbon credits that I will be able to use to offset some of the emissions that I wouldn't be able to offset in any other way. We can discuss how robust that whole framework is, uh, but that's what oil companies are doing to get to a point where they can say, yeah, from a, from a net perspective, if we sum all the emissions from our operations and from our and from the use of our products versus all the actions that we are taking either to produce renewable energy or to remove carbon from the atmosphere. So on a net basis, we'll get to a point where one thing balances the other. So that's, that's, that's what they understand by net zero. And how do we as consumers, as, or as, as people who are interested in, in the market, looking at us, know the difference between genuine um, moves to get yourself to net zero and what's known as greenwashing, which is you know, things that may sound good but actually have got very little impact in, in, in practice. I always think that greenwashing is a very loaded term in a way. And the reason why I'm saying that is because when I think about greenwashing, I always think that it, uh, it's an active measure by companies to deceive their customers, deceive the public of what they are doing. Um, I usually tend to believe that most companies are not on the business of actively deceiving people. Maybe in some cases they are, but I would, and I would think that for most companies, what they are actually doing is getting it wrong or getting very wrong in terms of how they understand the problem, how they communicate what they're doing, and they haven't done their homework in terms of having uh, their necessary plans to actually address the, the problem, address the expectations of their, their, their customers, their consumers, the, the public in general, of where they should be going. And, and why I'm saying that? Because usually the companies that um, are accused of greenwashing are companies that have very muddled plans and w where you don't understand very well the logic behind what they're doing or, or, you, or you need to be very good at um, um, and calculating what they are doing on a very big spreadsheet and trying to see things add up or, or not uh, to get to a point where saying, yeah, okay, maybe th this is the math that they are doing to actually say that they're moving towards net zero. So, so in, in other words, what they are not doing is that they are not being transparent enough. They are not taking the effort to measure, disclose, and you know, communicate uh, clearly their plans. They, they might not even have detailed plans of how they are going to get to a point where they can say that they are going to get towards net zero or something. And the more difficult it is to understand what a company is doing, the less transparent it is, the more muddled their communication, uh, the less trust there will be from the public in general on what they are doing. And then it will be far too easy to think that the company is hiding something, wasn't, is not doing what it should. And then, yeah, those companies up, open themselves up to charges of greenwashing. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong here, though. You seem to be overall really very positive about the, the role that the energy, that the, the large energy companies, oil and gas majors, as, as I would, would call them, are playing in the energy transition. Are there exceptions to that, to that generality, or is that, is that, that generally how, how you feel? Yeah, I think, um, um, again, maybe because I was there in the industry and then I, I might have been working with one of the companies that had more foresight than others in terms of we need to move into that direction. But, but in general, I tend to think that most companies, they want to do the right thing. Most companies, they want to address the concerns of society. They, they think about the importance of producing energy and the importance of energy uh, in, in society and and then they see themselves as playing a strong role into providing energy in a way that is needed in a way that is wanted by uh, by society um, obviously it's a big industry you have different players some companies are moving faster than others in terms of 
trying to move away from fossil fuels into a, a more clean energy future for them. Some companies, they see themselves as the faster that we can move into a clean energy future, the more that will give us uh, the competitive advantage in that new space uh, that's opening up and that's growing very fast. Whereas others are like, no, I, I uh, will stick to my core capabilities, to my industrial heritage, um, and then I'll keep being as efficient as I can um, in, in that space. And that will provide the returns demanded by my investors and so on. Um, I think by now, most companies are not being obstructive in terms of denying the need to change or, 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 or denying that climate change needs to be addressed. That was certainly the case maybe 10, 15 years ago. We can certainly think about any one or two American companies that were actually quite active into any lobbying for uh, to stamp out discussion or even any denying the need to change. Most of the European companies, they, they had bought up on the need to change a long time ago. Uh, the question is how fast or how they will go about doing that. But in general, the industry is trying to use its core capabilities, its skills, its expertise into that new space. And it, this is an industry that has a lot of history and legacy and expertise on, on fields that are going to be very much needed on on the clean energy uh, space. Fields like engineering, for example, either um, being able to manage uh, mega projects, uh, mega projects at scale, being able to manage uh, and develop projects in very difficult environments like offshore, for example, being able to develop industrial processes that are going to be needed, like if we are going to develop, for example, a hydrogen economy, or hydrogen business in a way, or hydrogen market, you will need a lot of engineering and chemical uh, skills to actually develop this market. And even with uh, some topics like carbon capture and storage, for example, those companies, they have a lot of uh, geologists on their own benches. Those geologists are going to be needed to develop the, the uh, subsurface reservoirs where you will store that carbon that you capture as well. So by trying to uh, redeploy the skill sets that they have by trying to redeploy their cash flow from the cash cow business from the oil and gas into the new renewables or clean energy business by trying to move into the right direction by adopting this um, uh, concept of net zero. I believe that most companies are actually very much committed to uh, doing the right thing in a way and, and moving into the right direction. Um, I, I wouldn't say that's true for everybody, but I would say that, uh, that that's certainly true for most companies. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm an optimist in a way, in, in the sense that I think that the, the industry has fully bought in into its role as being part of the solution rather than you know, some outliers trying to you know, still be part of the problem. You mentioned previously that you had direct experience of working in two very different markets. Um, one is, uh, well, obviously UK, but, uh, but you know, the two you particularly mentioned were uh, Norway and Brazil. You have two, two countries that famously have got very, very different approaches and will have very different, you know, global north, global south ways of looking at the energy transition with different pressures. Could you talk a little bit about the, the differences between, between the two? For me, it has been quite interesting having worked on, on both markets. And probably if I had to pick an archetype of the global north and the global south, or maybe the challenges of um, navigating the energy transition or addressing climate change in the global north and the global south, probably I'll pick a, as an archetype Norway and Brazil. Very different countries, as you can imagine. But it's interesting that both countries also have a, some very strong parallels as well. And they have um, most of their energy... Um, mix is based on hydropower uh, generation, very different uh, I mean, the types of hydropower in, in both countries, but they have a strong renewable uh, base to begin with. Um, they also have a strong oil and gas, uh, offshore oil and gas industry as well. And there are some interesting um, investment flows as well between Brazil and all, especially on this offshore oil and gas space. But um, maybe starting with, with, with Norway as well, and uh, because I want to spend more time on, on Brazil, Norway is an interesting example of an, um, a developed country, an industrialized country, that 
and is at the forefront of um, uh, trying to decarbonize its society, trying to move to a clean energy future. Um, usually when you think about Norway, you think about I mean, a country that I mean, is very much um, uh, the, the kind of the flagship of like the green economy and so on. It's probably the country with the highest electric vehicle adoption in the world. But at the same time, it's a country that is struggling to replace its oil and gas industry, its export-oriented oil and gas industry, in a way that um, they, um, they makes it sustainable for them to replace that industry with something else. And that industry sustains a big supply chain. It, uh, it sustains a lot of jobs in the country. It's a big part of the, and it, why the country is so, uh, is so wealthy. Uh, and it has contributed to, to the country being able to accumulate a, a pension fund of uh, over a trillion dollars over time. Um, so how do you replace that industry? And uh, now the country is in the middle of um, trying to transform itself from an exporter of fossil fuels into an exporter of like clean energy. But it's very early stages for Norway to try to take this new role. Uh, and it's interesting because Equinor as a company has been investing on clean energy, on renewable energy in in places like the UK, for example, but Norway as a country is still on a, on a um, different stage in terms of its transformation. And so this is a big dilemma in that society. Brazil, on the other hand, is, a, is an interesting dilemma from a much different perspective. It's, it might be the archetype of the developing country um, that needs to invest in renewable power generation because it needs more energy to grow. It can't develop anymore some of those huge uh, hydropower projects that it has relied to in, uh, in the past. So most of the um, electricity generation growth that we see in Brazil going forward is probably going to come from solar and wind, as it should. But there is um, there's an interesting dilemma in the country between the need for energy, um, but also the need to uh, keep the uh, well develop the economy. Uh, grow the economy, getting people out of poverty, and, and so on. And the country also is another interesting example of a different dilemma. Because of the, uh, the size of the country, because of uh, the big reliance on road transportation, for example, how do you move away from the use of uh, fossil fuels, diesel, gasoline, and so on for road transport into a more sustainable and maybe renewable and more clean energy, um, energy mix? The advantage of having all those dilemmas, of having to you know, grow its economy on one hand and, and uh, decarbonize on the other hand, is that you can experiment with lots of different things. So, for example, you are not going to ever going to have a fully electrifiable vehicle fleet in a country the size of Brazil, and I think simply because you can't install charging stations on on a country that big. And G GDP per capita is an important consideration. Yeah, you, you need to grow the economy, you need to keep uh, moving people out of poverty in a way. Uh, so how do you replace uh, fossil fuels for, on the transportation sector? Maybe a way to do that would be uh, to invest in things like synthetic fuels, for example. So if you, if you have enough renewables, you can generate um, hydrogen, and you can mix it with CO2, and then you can have like synthetic fuels to with a mix with biofuel for, for biofuels, for example, then you displace some of the some of the fossil fuels. In in a way, that sounds like a any, like a big idea, but the challenge that the country has right now is that it also is very much exposed to the global commodities market. So, any all the increase in the oil and gas prices across the globe is impacting heavily Brazil, and it's making the transportation fuels quite expensive. Maybe a way to get away from that would be to replace it with, uh, with synthetic fuels and, and more biofuels, for example, which are more locally sourced, and then you decouple yourself a bit from the, from the global markets. But this dilemma between economic development and environmental conservation, between the need to uh, grow your economy, grow your GDP, um, and to do that you need more energy, and what kind of energy you're going to invest in, and so on. Th those are all the dilemmas for most of the emerging markets as well. So Brazil is a good example, but it's also a place where you can try out new solutions, for example. Another interesting um, maybe reference could be different than most parts of Europe. Um, you have like um, a, a well-developed gas pipeline infrastructure. Uh, in Brazil, most residents, they rely on bottled gas to cook, for example. Um, and if you can replace that with 
maybe some solutions like I don't know, rooftop solar to provide enough energy for uh, an electric stove, maybe that could displace bottled gas as a, um, uh, as a, as a source of energy needed for, uh, for the residential sector. So those innovative solutions are needed on developing economies like Brazil if we are going to have every country moving along the energy transition journey. So every, every country will have its own pathway, will have its own roadmap towards energy transition, towards a decarbonized future, towards a net zero future. We tend to have a perspective, a very kind of, you know, uh, Western European perspective you know, when, when, when we particularly talk, talk about these things. Um, but it's very important to bear in mind that the energy transition has got a bigger impact, a larger impact on other parts of the world, well, other parts of the world where, where GDP per capita is lower and there's less money then available for, for the types of things you need to be doing to be uh, preventing against the worst impacts of climate change, like uh, building dams, building reservoirs, protect, protecting yourself um, against heat waves here than it is in, um, in Africa or South America. And there's no one size fits all. The solutions that we are trying out here might or might not work in, in places like Brazil. Anyway, another interesting parallel is exactly because of the offshore in industry and because Brazil has uh, uh, strong winds as well on its coast. They, they are on the threshold of starting to develop a strong offshore wind market, a strong offshore wind industry as well. And they're taking the legacy of their offshore oil and gas industry again and repurposing it for the offshore wind uh, space. So all those opportunities to redeploy the industrial base that you have to use the, the, the capabilities and, and the infrastructure and the, the ports and the supply chain that you already have for one industry and redeploy it to another one. The, this is the future of, um, of most countries that have invested heavily on, on the fossil fuel industry. And now they have this opportunity to repurpose it into a you know, cleaner industry going forward. Some of the technologies that have been uh, much discussed on repurposing um, the assets and the, uh, the the expertise of the fossil fuel industry have been um, most of the conversations been around things like hydrogen or carbon capture and storage. Do you see that them playing an important part? Or are they overblown, underblown? Where do you see CCS and hydrogen in in the future? Yep, I think that um, CCS, carbon capture and storage, is definitely going to be an important part of the solution. Or maybe taking a step back. Both technologies are going to be an important part of the, uh, the, the solution. Criticism of uh, carbon capture and storage is usually that, well, and companies are only doing that because it allows them to just uh, continue their status quo and, and continue doing their, their business as usual without having to think too much about how to move away from fossil fuels. So they just uh, try to ca capture carbon on the side and then uh, keep going. I believe that carbon capture and storage has a bigger future than that. And together with hydrogen, it's going to be an interesting part of the toolbox to decarbonize, uh, decarbonize society, decarbonize the energy mix in, in most countries. But, but let me disagree with that a little bit. So carbon capture and storage, um, most companies that I know of are doing that as a way to try to create a standalone business on its own. Some people don't like it, but I like to compare it with uh, the garbage collection business, which is like, how do you build a logistics business, a network business, where you can help others to decarbonize their hard to decarbonize sectors, in, if you have the expertise to actually take the carbon, uh, the, the carbon dioxide from them, transport it to a safe storage place and, and then store it safely on a subsurface reservoir. So the oil and gas industry has been doing that forever. Um, and now they're developing a flexible solution where they can get the carbon dioxide from others and then transport it and store it on, on their behalf. So it's a kind of third party service to deal with uh, some of the, uh, the emissions that are that others find it hard to decarbonize. And then you charge a service fee for that, and then you, you, you build a business around that. Whether that business is going to be commercially sound or not, this is something that uh, the companies are testing out right now. To start with, you, you need some government support to, to build up the infrastructure needed, to build the scale needed to, to get it going. 
but then I believe that that will get to a scale where it might be a, a, a business on its own. Combine that with any gas production, and then you might get into the, maybe the blue hydrogen discussion. Okay, so I can reform gas into hydrogen and, and then you know, start uh, a hydrogen market. So one question that uh, we always ask uh, all, all interviewees on Conversations on Climate is why should people uh, care about what you care about? Why, if, if you're sitting um, behind your desk, uh, w- wanted to make a, an investment decision or wanted to hire somebody or, want, or you're sitting, you're a student, wondering what career you should be, should be going down, why should people who are listening to, to this or watching this care about what, what you do? Why, why, why is strategy in, important in the energy transition? I um, believe that people should care about energy space because I, I truly believe that this is, an, this is an exciting space to be in as well. And I mentioned my background as an engineer when we started. Um, I still get fascinated by some of the hard technology and bits and, and bolts, but also in a digital technology that's being developed in that space. I think that there is so much innovation that can be applied on, on the energy space that this by itself makes it a, a very exciting space uh, to be in. Um, and energy is so important on, in it, on everybody's lives as well. It touches upon all aspects of, um, of our daily lives. It's not only about transportation, it's not only about um, any powering our homes. It's also, and if you look at the petrochemical sector, it's also about everything that we use on a daily basis. So given the sector importance, given the, the engineering, the nerdiness that, uh, that it entails as well, um, uh, given the, how exciting the technology uh, aspect of this industry is, I think that's definitely an attractive industry for people coming into that space. And I can clearly understand the reluctance of people that see the oil and gas industry as a legacy industry. And I'm one that has moved away from oil and gas into renewables. But the renewable space, the clean energy space, um, is a, almost like a, a blank canvas. There is a lot that we can still innovate and deploy and industrialize on that space. And it's, we, in that space, we'll need the brightest minds, you'll need the, 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 uh, the people with lots of interesting commercial approaches and uh, technology-driven approaches to actually move us away from the fossil fuel industry into the, the, the clean future, into the kind of net zero or decarbonized world that we all envisage. So that's why I think it's an exciting space to be in. That's why I think they could and should care about the same things that I care about. And designing strategies, advising companies um, on how they should navigate their own energy transition journeys, how they should decarbonize their business, how they should move towards a net zero um, ambition. And it, that, that's what I care about. And that's why I think it's an ex- exciting space to be in. Uh, every Every country's journey will be different. Every company's journeys will be different. But we all need to get to the same point, which is a decarbonized world, which is a, you know, a net zero world. So that's, um, yeah, that's why I think that people should care about the same thing as I do. Well, thank you very much. You've been enormously generous with your time and uh, massively appreciated. Thank, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, If you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels. And we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.